Let's start our reading at verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you are walking? They stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? They said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. And did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had also said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he would go farther. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he, had, he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their sight. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, 
Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead in three days, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great text. Thank you that the risen Lord went about and met with these two men. What an amazing thing it is. Thank you for the way in which their hearts burned at the exposition of the scriptures. May we experience that same sense of your presence as we read your word, as we study it this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our friend Bill McRae told us a story of how this text changed his life. He uh, was a great athlete. In fact, I read an article years ago that was called Make Way for McRae. Bill was the quarterback, and people were making way for him to score touchdowns. He was so good that a large university in Canada offered him a scholarship if he would play football for them. And Bill was ready and inclined to do that. In those days, Emmaus Bible College was uh, located in Toronto, in Canada, not in the U.S. And there were two Emmaus students who were going on a camp out, and they had invited Bill to go along with them, and he had agreed. And after he had made that commitment, the college coach, the football coach from the university, called him and told him there was a special event that was going on at the university this next weekend, and that Bill was to be there. Bill said to him, I'm sorry I've made a commitment that I really can't break, so I'm just not going to be able to be at that event. It was that weekend that he went on the camp out. And Bill tells the story of how when they were bunking down for the night, these two students began to talk about this text. Bill, who had been a believer for years, had been a part of a good church for years, said, I never heard anybody talk about a text of scripture with that depth before in my life. And I determined that more than anything else, I wanted to know how to deal with scripture in the same way. Bill went home and he turned down the college scholarship and he went to Emmaus Bible College. And you know the rest of the story. That was a life-changing event. This text was a text that changed the course of his life. I have to say to you that as I have studied it again, I've sensed that same urgency, that same potency of this text for myself. And when I went to breakfast with the guys on Wednesday, I had a sense they felt the same thing. There is something about this text that I believe is powerful and that you and I need to hear this morning. So here's my approach. Uh, Most of you, I think, have notes in your hand. I purposed to keep them simple because that's part of where I'm going in this message. And there may be things you need to think about. You pursue those. But I don't want to 
I, I don't want to put too many facts before you. My purpose is make some broad observations about the passage and then probe it a little bit in terms of what the implications of those observations are for you personally and for us as a church. So let me make my first observation, and that is the structure of the text. If you look at the whole chapter, it all takes place uh, the first day of the week. But there are three major sections. The first 12 verses really deal with the women, uh, and to some degree with the 11 disciples. But the first part is about the women who go to the tomb, they find it empty, they encounter the angel, and the angel reminds them of what Jesus said, and they remember. And I say to myself, these gals are sharper than the guys, because the guys are saying to themselves, you know, there's something going on here. And they refuse to believe the testimony of these women, that Jesus indeed is alive. Peter is picked out in verse 12 as the sort of final piece of that. And Peter goes and he looks in the tomb and he sees that it's empty. And yet he won't put together all those facts and say, what do you know? Jesus is alive. He walks away scratching his head as though there's some missing piece. Then we come to the second section, and that's verses 13 through 32. That's really the focus that I want to have, and that's Jesus and the two men on the road to Emmaus. And then the third piece is in verse 33 all the way through verse 53, the end of the chapter. That's when these two guys run back to Jerusalem, and they tell the story to the apostles who have already heard and who have mentally at least accepted the reality of Jesus' resurrection. But when he shows up, they still have trouble wrapping their mental arms around it. So that's the story in short. Second, would you observe with me the timing of this event? In verse 13, it says, On that very day. In the beginning of the chapter, it says, on the first day of the week. And the two men say to Jesus, and behold, it's the third day. So, would you agree with me? This is Easter. This is Easter Sunday, so to speak, for these uh, disciples. This is the day Jesus rose from the dead. Third, I want you to take a good look at these two men. And I would also say, when you do that, notice that there is this playoff. There are actually two parallel stories going on. One of them is Jesus teaching the 11 and those gathered with them about what the scriptures have to say about the Christ, the Messiah. The other is Jesus speaking to these two. And so you have these differences that take place uh, in what, what occurs, but... These two disciples, I think, while they are associated with the 11, that is, they are in that broader group, they've been there with the 11, and frankly, I wonder if part of the reason they're not headed back for Emmaus is they're saying, I'm not going to be with that grumpy bunch of guys. I mean, all they are is sitting around wringing their hands. It's not a real happy place to be. But anyway, here's the 11, and now we've got the two off to themselves. Why does our Lord Jesus, why does Luke 
focus our attention on these men. Well, I think we can say this. These are not happy guys, right? These are not happy fellows. They are depressed. They are discouraged. And it took me a while to see this, but thanks to an author I read, I think it's true. They're quitting. These guys are going to Emmaus, friends. They're going the wrong way. I was thinking about cars, planes, and automobiles. Do you remember that? One of my favorite lines of John Candy is, you're going the wrong way. They are. They're going from Jerusalem, not to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know exactly where Emmaus is, and frankly, none of the scholars do either. But Jesus told them specifically through the women, I'm going to meet you in Galilee, and I'll lay you a wager that Emmaus is not on the road to Galilee. If you're going to meet Jesus, you're headed toward Galilee. That's where he's going to be. I think they're going the other way. I think they're kind of Jonah-like at this moment in time. They're sad. They're discouraged. And yet, I have to say, this is really kind of the irony of the way that Luke writes this. But when Jesus says to these guys, uh, what have you been talking about? Do you notice the sort of tone of rebuke? And they are saying to Jesus, man, are you ignorant? Isn't that what they're saying? And when this thing gets down to the punchline, what's Jesus going to say to them? You want to talk about ignorance? Let's talk about that. You are the ones who are ignorant, not me. But I want you to notice, too, what Jesus does. Here are two two guys who are discouraged and whatever, and I want to say their no-names. I know Cleopas is there. I know it's there. And nowhere else in the Bible. These are not two of the shakers and movers of that day, so far as I see it, or at least so far as the Scripture represents it. Are they? These guys are on the scene. When they drop out at the end of this uh, story, they're gone. We don't know anything grand that they did. So it isn't as though Jesus said to himself, you know, I need to give special attention to these two guys because they really have potential. I know they're really going to make an impact. So far as we know, they didn't. All they were was discouraged. But look at how Jesus deals with them. He walks, now maybe not the full seven miles, but it's a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jesus just sort of intersects these two guys and just sort of walks alongside and, 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 you know, gets a part of the conversation and, and they, they carry on and finally Jesus says to him, well, uh, what are you guys talking about anyway? And so then they say, well, don't you know? And Jesus said, well, know what? Here's the interesting thing. Do you think Jesus didn't know what they were talking about? Do you think Jesus was ignorant of any of those facts? I went to a discovery class with Phil, and one of the lessons is when you're doing discovery Bible, in effect, keep your mouth shut. And, and our, our problem is we, we want to say too much too soon, too long. But the reality is you need to listen to what people are saying. Jesus is listening to these guys for who knows what portion of this trip listening to them, their discouragement, hearing them out. That, to me, amazes me. He's the one who has things to say. But he asks the question, and he listens carefully to their response. Seven miles 
seven miles. Now think of how Jesus could have done this. In fact, think of how I would have done it. I'd have said to myself, you know, this is my resurrection day. I'm a busy man. I got a lot of things to do. What part of the day, how much of this day was taken up by this walk? Wouldn't you say a large piece of it? Now granted, he's going to make an appearance to the the 11 uh, at the end of the day or when they meet. But he takes a, a substantial amount of time with these guys. And I have to ask myself the question, why? Why? If they're not shakers and movers, if they're not going to have a significant impact in the church or whatever in days to come, why? Why them? Why now? And I come to one answer. Grace. Grace. He came to them because they were hurting. And then I stumble across these verses. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Would you say that fits our two fellows? I would. He came to them because they were hurting men. Or Psalm 147, verses 2 and 3. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And if you want to get the message from Luke, then you can do it by just following three chapters. Luke chapter 4, the synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus gets up and he reads from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus said to them, This day in your hearing, that text is fulfilled. That's what he's doing. Luke chapter 5. The Pharisees are grumbling. The Pharisees' complaint with Jesus is that he's spending time with people like this. Or, to put it maybe in more crass terms, that he doesn't seem to be spending a lot of time with people like them. And so, the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling to his disciples in Luke 5, verse 30. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is there because those two men need him. It's that simple. I'm not sure that he needs them. They need him. And then let's just move on over, mosey on over to Luke chapter 6, his version of the Beatitudes. Verse 20, and turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. That's Jesus. Jesus cares about hurting people. It's possible in this audience, or in my hearing, there is somebody who says, in effect, you know, I'm just not that important. God really doesn't care about me. If you're hurting, if you're hurting, he does. 
he cares enough about you, as it were, to walk seven miles, to listen to your heart, and to open the Word of God. That, to me, is amazing about our Lord Jesus. There's more to say on that point, but let me move to my next point. I want you to observe how Jesus ministered to these two men. It's kind of interesting because when you look at Jesus working with the eleven, it's clear that he first physically appears to them and convinces them that he is indeed the risen Christ. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. By the way, when we pick on doubting Thomas, these guys are all Thomases. Are they not? Thomas just wasn't there to see and feel what they did then. So Jesus reveals himself physically to the 11. Then he goes to the scriptures secondarily. In our text, he goes to the scriptures first, concealing himself as to who he was. And then he reveals himself, and I think it was seconds after the realization, holy smoke, this is Jesus. I think he's gone that fast. Isn't that interesting? Shows them the scriptures, and then he shows them himself and instantly goes away. Now, wouldn't you think, wouldn't you like for those guys if they had a chance to ask? I mean, they said to Jesus as they were walking along, and they were going to have Jesus go off on his way. He says, man, no, please stay with us. What do you think they would have said to Jesus after they realized it was Jesus? Man, they'd have hung on, which reminds me of that text where Jesus says to Mary, stop clinging to me. You know, there's something that happens from the point of our Lord's resurrection to his ascension. And that is Jesus is somewhat distant from the disciples. I think what he says to Mary, stop clinging. I haven't yet ascended to my father. I think when you see him coming and going, even like this text in Luke, he appears, or like John chapter 21, going fishing. Jesus appears, but he just comes and goes. I'm sure the disciples would have liked to have said to Jesus, can't we have it like it used to be? Can't we just sit around the campfire and talk, you know, good things about the Bible and whatever? Can't we just fellowship? And I think the answer is no. And, of course, the question then has to be, why? Why did Jesus conceal his identity and the minute it's evident, he goes away? I think it's related to what we shared in our service uh, and our worship time. In those latter chapters, or John 14 through 16 in particular, where Jesus says, I'm going away, well, 13 through 16, I'm going away and you can't come with me. There is that emphasis of, we're here together now, but we're not going to be together for a period of time, and then we'll be together again, let's say, in heaven, okay? Jesus says something else that counterbalances that. And he says it twice, once in chapter 14 of John and once in chapter 16. He says, in effect, you see me now, then you won't see me, but soon you will see me. Isn't that what he says twice? Well, how will they see him? Come on, I want an answer from that. How will they see him? 
if he's not there? Through his word. Through his word. He says to them, I'm going to leave my spirit and my spirit's going to remind you of what I said. And then in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes, the spirit of God takes the word of God and he reveals those things which natural men can't absorb. He reveals them to us. He wants us like he wanted them to see Jesus in the word. To experience him in the word. He didn't have to be physically present. And if you want to press it one more notch, Jesus actually goes so far as to say it's better that way. Does he not? It's better. So if we're looking at ourselves like second class saints and saying, oh, if we could only be back there. Hey, we really don't see it much differently than they did. We have the scriptures too. So Jesus wanted to commence the period where people would begin to see him in his word. And I think this text says perhaps more loudly than any other. That's what it's all about. Seeing Jesus in the scriptures. Okay, now let's talk about what's missing. Come on, be honest. Don't most of you and I read this text and say, Oh, if I could have been one of those two. If I could have just been Cleopas. I I think I would have yelled at him and I would have said, Turn on the recorder. Right? The reality is we don't know what he said. You think, shucks, that's exactly what I was waiting for. I thought I was going to get the Bible lesson of all times. And what do you get? Well, in one sense, nothing. Because it's not recorded. And it's not recorded when Jesus deals with the 11 either. Now that's interesting. Well then, what do we get? We get the key. We get the key. What is the key? What is the key that allows us this great experience these two men had? The key is seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Is that not right? Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, that's what they saw. Well, then why doesn't he tell us about that? My answer is because he wants us to see it for ourselves. He doesn't want to just have it in our notes so we can look down and review it and pass a test on it. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. In fact, he's given us the new... Look, folks, these guys didn't have a copy of the Old Testament packed around under their arms, did they? We have the Old Testament and the New. We have the book of Hebrews that says, Hey, you know about Melchizedek back there in Genesis 14? Well, he's a picture of Jesus. Okay, now we say the lights are coming on. I can see how to the right of the Hebrews got that. When you start reading or look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10... The rock that followed them was, holy cow, where's this stuff coming from? Take an example from the apostles themselves in the New Testament. We have that. These guys didn't have that. Okay, 
We've got the Spirit of God who works in us, who enlightens our hearts and minds to this. We're not second-class saints, folks. But the job is to see Jesus. Here's another one. The key is to see him in the big picture, not in the minutia. Now, I say that because it says in verse 25 of Luke 24, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Doesn't that seem to suggest to you that they said a lot? Or, verse 27, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Or in verse 32, They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And later in the chapter, it says not only with Moses and with the prophets, it also includes the Psalms. Well, what did he leave out? Nothing. Nothing. I want to say to you, there is no book in the Bible where you won't find Jesus if your eyes are open and the Spirit's leading you. There is no book like that. Now, here's the thing. You got seven miles to go. I don't know exactly how many hours that is on the road, but remember it took Jesus a while to listen to these guys and whatever, and so you got a certain amount of time that's limited. How do you do all the Bible in a couple of hours? Huh? How do you do that? By hitting the high points. I think what Jesus didn't do is to say, now guys, this word, if we parse it, and we really analyze it, this is going to be so good. The reality is, it's really hard to see the big picture if you're focusing on the minutia. Now, I almost made you endure a couple of pictures, but I went out to the internet, you can do it this afternoon, of looking at magnified pictures of things that that are, are so highly magnified, you would never guess what they were. It is nearly impossible to go to the big picture from the minutia. Nearly impossible. But it is much easier to go from the big picture to the minutia. Now I gotta say, I got a confession to make. I preached for a lot of years. And I was like many others. I was digging down deeper and staying down longer than, you know, who knows. And and it it, it felt and sounded good. And and that was the Dallas Seminary way. Did you ever see a sermon Jesus did like that? Did you ever see a sermon Paul did like that? The reality is Jesus teaches this sermon and he covers the whole Bible in a couple hours. Woo! That's moving. And i got to say, that's big picture. When you look at uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, man, he covers all of history. Now, and, and by the way, his time was a little shorter than some of the others. He got Somebody got the hook for Stephen. And when you look at Paul in Acts chapter 13, and he sums up the gospel the way he does, it's the big picture. I think that's one of the things that I've been missing 
is really an emphasis on where is the big picture. And then with the big picture in view, how do we move to these smaller elements? And it's only that way, I think, that some of the things that we see in the scripture can be done, like what Jesus did. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, I did not withhold from you anything that was necessary to know. He said that, that to the Ephesian elders. Okay, let's grant that Paul was there in their presence teaching for a ballpark three years. That's about right, give or take a little bit, okay? Three years. How in the world do you teach people everything they need to know in three years? And I think back, I'm saying, man, I've been around here about 40 years. <laughs> I think I covered maybe half of the books of the Bible. How do you do that in three years? You go to the big points. You go to the big points. And I got to tell you, folks, Jesus is not only the big point, he is the point. He's the point. These events that took place in those days are the place at which all of the dots of the Bible converge. My voice will return. That's what happens when you get excited. All the points of the Bible converge at the cross. And so if you understand that, then everything else makes sense. That's what they didn't understand. That's what Jesus explained is all of the Bible is pointed to the cross. Old Testament looks forward. New Testament looks backward. But it all focuses on the cross. If you're into connecting the dots, folks, this is the dot that connects everything else. So, for me, it says, I think I need to focus on bigger points. And especially, by the way, as my life gets shorter and shorter, time's getting limited. I don't think I have time to go through the Bible one word at a time. I'm not saying there's no value to that. I'm simply saying you have to start with the big picture first. So let me talk about application for a minute or two. Wow, time's better than I thought. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, breathe a sigh of relief out there. <laughs> don't, don't get worked up about this. I, here's, here's one that I didn't put in your notes. It classically, I added it during the worship time. This is the key to Jewish evangelism. If, if you look at, at Paul's method of evangelism as he goes about to the synagogues, it goes like this. And this is the simple version. But he basically says, you know, isn't it interesting that you go back to Genesis and you see this? See Genesis chapter 12 and you see Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. And then you go to Genesis chapter 22 and somehow there has to be the sacrifice of this son and then there's Joseph and the suffering and then there's the exodus, giving of the law and, and, and whatever. And all of that, he says, isn't it interesting that when you look through the Old Testament like that, it's pointing to someone. Now, who might that someone be? Isn't that, isn't that the whole point? And then he says, I got it. I've got it. It's Jesus. And now he spells out the gospel. And he says, look at how Jesus conforms to and fulfills this prophecy, this expectation. Look how he fulfills this. And he just goes down the line. The Jews thought that it was through the seed 
of Abraham, and of course they were the seed. Paul says, I'm sure to them, like he does in Galatians chapter 3, the seed is singular, not plural. It's one. The seed is Jesus. And I say to you, if it's good enough for Paul, folks, that's really good enough for us. You want to introduce a Jewish friend to Jesus? Take him through the Old Testament and then ask, who could possibly fulfill all these things? Only Jesus. Now, it's not bad for Gentiles either, I might mention. But it's seeing Jesus in the light of all of the expectation. Tom was talking about the Roman road. Maybe we're, maybe it's even longer than Rome. <laughs> maybe it's, you know, the Old Testament road. A friend asked me, I think this week, where in the Bible does the Bible tell us how to study the Bible? Good question, right? My answer to you would be, if it isn't in this passage, I don't know where it is. This text tells us that we understand the cross of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection through the Old Testament by understanding that it fulfills all of the things that the Old Testament said were going to happen. That's how you understand the Bible. Or to put it in simple terms, look for Jesus. You want to understand the Bible? Look for Jesus because the Bible is all about him. Period. And whenever somebody starts moving past Christ, and that's what the cults always do, that's what the philosophers always do. Well, this Jesus stuff, that's okay, but let's move on to bigger things. There are no bigger fish to fry than Jesus crucified and resurrected. That's where it is. Okay, it's all about Jesus. And my, you see that everywhere you look. Paul says, I preach Christ and Christ crucified, First Corinthians chapter 1. I don't have any other message. He doesn't need any other message. Colossians chapter 1 says everything is summed up in him. All the wisdom is summed up in Jesus. If you find Jesus, you found it. And there's nothing else, in my opinion, to seek. Here's another one. When we see Jesus in the Old Testament, it not only explains a whole lot, it motivates it motivates us to study those dull and boring texts. Do you ever read the Psalms, especially 119? Do you ever read the Psalms and wonder what's wrong with him? He says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. And we're, some of you are reading through the Bible, right? I mean, aren't you saying to yourself, man, when am I going to get out of here so I can get onto something good? You ought to have a chat with the psalmist about that. I get, at Bible.org, I get a fair amount of email, um, most of it, thank yous, not all of it, of course, uh, and people will thank me in, for particular passages of the Bible. You know what? I think maybe the number one popular text of Scripture for which people write me a note of thanks, Leviticus. Leviticus. Now, some of you old-timers remember, I did a series called Learning to Love Leviticus. 
over and over, people said, I dread that book. I try, I try to avoid it. I want to go there. And then I stumbled across your study and I said, holy cow, this stuff is good. Not my stuff, that stuff. You know why? Because they saw Jesus. That's why. What they're really saying is, did not our hearts burn within us? As we read Leviticus? I mean, Jesus covered Leviticus, didn't he? All of Moses and the prophets. Sure he did. It's motivating. We love to find Jesus. We'll love to find him everywhere he is in the Bible. And that is everywhere in the Bible. My friend Jim Hummel sent me a note this week that may sum all of this up in three three phrases. Seeing Christ savoring Christ and serving Christ. I don't think you can sum up our task with respect to the Bible any better than that, can you? First level is to see Jesus. The second is to savor it, to love it, to have if you can, if you overindulge a little heartburn. And finally to serve him. You serve him because you've seen him and you love him. That's what this is about. I have to tell you, I think heaven is going to be like the road to Emmaus. On the way. On the way. Not not on the road again. <laughs> on the way. Think about Genesis chapter 3. You know, here was this tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was the McDonald's of wisdom. Have it your way. Pick it. You got it. Fast. Why was that wrong? It wasn't wrong because they didn't grasp good and evil because Jesus, God says they did. They become like us. They now know good and evil. It wasn't that. I think it was because God's way is he'd rather tell us while he's walking with us in the evening. I think that's really true. I think God loves to talk with people as he walks with them. Deuteronomy chapter 6 talks about the law and storing up the law. And one of the things he says is, talk about it when you're on your way. I know there are people here who do this, but maybe some of the rest of us need to become more diligent. Not only to turn your radio off, I know that's not according to the song, but... Turn the radio off. But as we're driving on our on our way, maybe we should be listening to Scripture. I know there are people who do that. Listening to God's Word. And listening to it in bigger chunks. I love daily bread, but folks, a little dab won't do you. Uh, I know, only you old goats all understand. That real cream ad, a little dab will do you. Okay, sorry. But a little dab won't do you. It takes, it takes mega doses. That's what this is about. It's about reading through Leviticus and actually getting the point, the picture of Jesus. I think that's the ideal. And I would go so far as to say, I think that Luke 24 is going to be like heaven. I know there are people... 
who knows what heaven's like. I mean, all I read like you do, but, you know, heaven is heaven. <laughs> but my sense is that when we pass through the door into eternity, I don't think that God hands us a hard drive and says, here's all the things you've wanted to know. Just plug it into your brain, and there it is. A, a, a sort of a core dump of all the truth. I think heaven is the progressive revelation and celebration of all that God's been doing. And it is so deep that we can go all of eternity and not exhaust it. You ever thought about that? Now, this is Jonathan Edwards. I'm really stealing from him, and Piper stole from him too, so I'm stealing from both of them. But I think it's the growing appreciation and grasp of what God is doing. And he feeds us these bits as we go along throughout eternity. And you'll say to yourself, well, what do you know? I never saw that before. Because the Bible is limitless in what it has to say about the infinite person of Jesus Christ. So I guess what I'm saying to you is this. I hope, number one, you're reading through your Bible this year. Number two, I hope you're reading through it in fairly sizable portions. Number three, I hope that you're doing so while you pray, let me see Jesus. Because he is there. He is there. And we need to find him through the Spirit as we read. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his amazing, amazing grace. The way that he sought out two men and perhaps the potentially busiest day of his life on earth took time to walk with them, to listen to their grief, and to give them hope through your word. Father, we see that it is seeing you that is all important, especially in those days that we live in where we don't see you with our eyes. May we see you in your word. May we share you with others. In his name we pray.